Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge, get a fresh new start. Jane Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Hi everyone, it's Fran Lewis and this is a special time. And we are going to speak with the author of When She Dreams, Amanda Quick, Jane Ann Krentz, and this book is outrageous. We talk about lucid dreams, and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of other things when we meet Maggie Lodge, assistant to the reclusive advice columnist known as Dent or Cornelia to her readers. But somebody is blackmailing her, and she hires this really cool guy, Sam Sage. You're going to fall in love with him like I did. And I'm not going to tell you any more. So, hi, welcome to MJ Network, MJ in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce. Welcome, and thank you for doing this. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, this just deals with a topic, the main topic you said is lucid dreams. So how would you define that? Because this is this is so interesting. I read the book in two hours. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> well, thank you. Um I should emphasize that this is set in the 1930s, the glamorous 1930s that we all know from the movies, not not necessarily the real 1930s. Um, California, Hollywood glam, it's just got that kind of a vibe to it. And at the time, the whole lucid dreaming thing was actually mm-hmm. a very big deal. People, it is today, too. People still mm-hmm. pay good money to be told how to have a lucid dream how to develop lucid dreaming. And it was a huge topic in science, scientific circles, medical circles, and um, the scammers, of course. The scammers were always out there to teach you how to have lucid dreams, how to make your dreams work. So there was just a general atmosphere of interest in the whole lucid dream thing. And for those who don't know what a lucid dream is, Mm-hmm. Most people define it by saying it's when you know you're dreaming, that sense that you know you're in a dream. Not everybody has that experience. Most people, if they do get it, don't have it very often. It's kind of rare. But mm-hmm. um, but there is that kind of sense of most of us have had something like that, I think, where you kind of wake, you're, you're not really awake, but you're not really fully asleep and you're in that lucid dream. And the beauty of lucid dreaming, supposedly, is because you can take control of the dream. You can sort of decide what what happens and what doesn't happen. Yeah, technically, the reason everybody's so interested in lucid dreaming is the idea that you could use it to actually not just write your own little script, but maybe to uh, solve problems that you can't get mm-hmm. around during the daytime or to come up with for a writer to come up with a new plot perhaps <laughs> there's all kinds mm-hmm. of reasons why people want to do it well you can have a situation that you're trying to forget and trying to see how you could remedy it if you just mm-hmm. think about how it might turn out <laughs> something like that 
Yes, so, different scenarios. Mm-hmm. We have Maggie Lodge. How did you create that first scene was scary, let me tell you. How did you create <laughs> the first scene between her and the, the crazy Dr. Oxlade? you, you got to admit that he's interesting, though. He was not boring. <laughs> no. You get to understand hopefully, him hopefully, after a while. Hopefully, hopefully none of the characters are boring. I, if, I'm yeah. telling you, if they bore me, they're not going to end up in the book. I, if I'm not interested in the characters, <laughs> I, figure, I figure the reader won't be either. Um, and I usually start in an action scene. That's just the way I write because I like to start a book at a place where I'm excited. And I, mm. So I tend to gravitate towards starting my stories, just dropping the reader into the action because that's where I want to be as the writer. That's mm. the part that gets me excited. So, so the opening scene in the doctor's office where he is trying to poison her is – is what you're talking about, and she yeah. realizes that she's being poisoned, and she has to fight her way out of that office. So that's the opening scene. What but was his goal, like though? That. His goal is to control dreams. He's that's what I think. And control of, her. Yeah. If you, his theory is that if you can control a person's dreams, you can control them. So he's 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 definitely the mad scientist guy in the book. He he's scary, very scary. <laughs> so he created something called the enhancer, and what was that supposed to do? And I, I tell you something, you created that scene so well that I was getting the chills, and I was like saying, "I better get some water and wake up," because I felt like I was part of a dream. <laughs> well, that's a, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. I'm glad. Glad you were able to get into the story that much. I I get obsessed with the stories when I'm writing them, so it's always nice to run into somebody who gets the same impact when they read them. Well, you did. Let me tell you, I have to ask this question: Is is this going to be? Are you going to bring them back by any chance, or is this a standalone? Usually, if I do, they'll be as a side characters, you know, on the side, mm-hmm. not. They won't be the main characters in the next book. I use a certain cast cast of characters that you will see from book to book. For example, there's a couple of characters. Luther Pell, he owns the nightclub, and um, mm-hmm. the, and then there's the um, Raina Kirk, his uh, his lover, and she owns the local investigation agency, and so. Those characters reappear as long as a handful of others from book to book, but the main couple in each book is always a new pair. And the reason I don't reuse them mm-hmm. is because I don't want to have to mess up the relationship. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'd have to go in and tear, <laughs> to do a plot with these two people again when I've just solved all their problems <laughs> and they are happily mm-hmm. ever, living happily ever after. I don't want to have to throw throw them into turmoil just to get a plot yeah. for the next book. So I'd rather start with fresh characters. Just make sure I you send me all of them, them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do write them all as standalones, but kind of mm-hmm. within a world that mm-hmm. is familiar. Readers who have read Amanda Quick will be familiar with the, mer- this, the Burning Cove, which is the town mm-hmm. where this takes place, which is for those of us on the West Coast, we recognize as a kind of a, a souped-up version of Santa Barbara, which is a uh, 
lovely well, boutique was, town that has always been. I, a, I, I tell you, it's place. interesting. The town was interesting. And I was like, really, I, I couldn't get it. I, I got into everything. So who was Sam oh, yeah. and how did she find him? And the, okay. it was like yeah. sort of like a tongue-in-cheek relationship. They would have, they hit it off, but you knew right away that she wasn't going to tolerate him and he was going to get wise to her, which is really cool. <laughs> I, one of the reasons I like shedding these books in the 1930s is, is because mm-hmm. that that snappy repartee just fits that period. You know, it's we kind of recognize it from some of the old movies. You know, those scripts mm-hmm. in the old movies just had that kind of back and forth banter. And it and it's a kind of mm-hmm. it's a kind of dialogue I've always liked to write. So it fits and in this case Sam Sage is a take up my spin on the classic uh, detective from the nineteen thirties detective, you know. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Dashiell Hammock type character. So uh, um, that Sam Sam is just that quintessential, laid back, sarcastic, you know, kind mm-hmm. of seen it all, private eye. And she's she's determined to put him into shape so that she can get a, get a detective <laughs> on, her, on her case. He's reluctant to take the case because it's a screwy one. It's from his point of view. It's all about dreams. Somebody's blackmailing a, a columnist, a gossip columnist, and somebody gets murdered. Yeah. And there's and the whole lucid dream thing is, is he's concerned as a scam. Um, so it's, for him, it wasn't the ideal case, but she makes him take it. I know. It's like... I, see, I I enjoyed the dialogue because it wasn't boring. It wasn't a typical oh I like you I can't stand you blah blah blah, and and it was it it it, it was just so it was just so hilarious. At times I thought I was talking to um, Ricky and Lucy because <laughs> they were so cute. <laughs> so well, I'm glad you enjoyed. It. I always hear the I always hear the stories in in my head in in the dialogue first. I, I hear the mm-hmm. dialogue more than I. See. You know, some writers will tell you they see things unfold like in a movie or like a a, a video. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's, but for me, it's all verbal. I hear the I hear the characters talking. That's what I have to learn how to do that. Me. When I write my books, I just write them in the first person because I don't want anybody to talk to anybody. <laughs> I I was like, and, and I'm a reading I'm a reading and writing specialist. That was my field, and I was like, it's so much easier just to. Tell somebody to talk. I've got to learn how to do that. So we have, this was so interesting. We learned about an opening conference. Tell us about the Institute and Arthur and Dorothy. Mm. Well, well, Arthur and Dorothy are the two, the Guilfoyles, are the two people who are running the, um, the dream, mm. the Lucid Dream Institute. And basically they're a couple of scammers. They're just riding this wave of interest in psychic dreaming and that was very big in the 1930s, lots of interest in it. And California was sort of a hotbed of, of um, self, self-made gurus and, uh, you know, people claiming to be able to teach you how to access the psychic side of your brain and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, it still is pretty, it's still a popular topic. Um, but... They've established the institute out in Burning Cove, 
and they're trying to build a business. Frankly, that's what it's all about: is a business, mm. and they have uh, they have their goals. And one of the goals is to use Dr. Oxlade's mysterious formula to actually give people the real experience of a lucid dream. Well, she decides that she wants to go, but Arthur, hmm, the minute you meet Arthur, you know that he's not what he appears to be. You know that. <laughs> that he that he's, he's this hot guy that, you know, wants what he wants. And then how did you create the fake Cornelia for Delia? That was really cool because nobody realized <laughs> it. Well, she, somebody did, but nobody realized it. That's because she's a... Uh working actress. She knows what she's doing. Mm-hmm. She took basically took it as a role to play and um, so it worked so well. And then she got scared. People somebody got killed and she got nervous. So why why yeah. would somebody want to go she wanted to pay for that because she wanted to go. See for her and for Sam, but why would somebody want to go to something like that? What would be the point? Did they want to be part of the uh, the draw, or they want to be part of what he does. They figured that maybe they, he would they would be part well, of the show. The actress, the fake Cornelia, is there because she's been paid to be there. Yeah. By the, the mysterious person in the background, who we don't know, who is out for revenge. But it's all part. She's part of a big revenge plot that's going on behind the scenes. So this, the underlying motive in this whole story is. Is vengeance. That's scary. That is really scary. <laughs> so, tell what is the Gifoyle method? I'm leaving out the next one. Yeah. What is that method? What exactly well, does that does, did he create? What did they create? Well, supposedly he has techniques. He teaches you various techniques. Supposedly, that's his mm-hmm. claim that he can teach you how to have access the psychic side of your dreaming and teach you how to do lucid dreaming and how to use it to take that one leap beyond and access your psychic talent. Everybody's got them, he says, and he can help you find yours. And he's a scam artist. That's what he's selling. So, but with the drug, the reason he's interested in Dr. Octave's drug is because it gives people hallucinations that make them think they have had a psychic experience. So they're going to have a hallucination, but they're going to think it's kind of like like you know, early experiments with LSD or something. And so his goal, Arthur Gilfoyle's goal is to sell you on his plan, and part of his plan includes giving you a drug that makes you think you've had a psychic experience. Mm. That, that, that's, he's that's he's not a good person. Not a good person. It, they, they know. None, either one of them are good people. So when Maggie, Maggie's pretty perceptive, and she meets Arthur and Dorothy, and then we meet Arthur, mm-hmm, Mr. Stud, and um, <laughs> what is Maggie's first impression of them? If she was going to go up and chat with them, what would she chat about? Well, remember, she's there to investigate whoever, whoever is blackmailing her boss. So she's, mm-hmm. she's, she's, she can actually chat about 
the whole lucid dream experience because mm-hmm. she's a real lucid dreamer. She has the real psychic vibe. So she knows the real from the false. And, but she can talk the language, so to speak. So that's, she, it's, she makes a good – the cover make, uh, of going to the Institute is a good cover for her because she, she knows how to talk the talk. But Dr. Oxlade is evil, and that's what, <laughs> well, that's what makes this so interesting. Dr. Oxlade <laughs> is evil, and in his own mind, he actually justifies what he's doing. And well, Arthur thinks he's the wonderful. So <laughs> what happens when he puts something in to try to, to try the drug? He wants to get her back, doesn't he? Yes, he sees. Oxlade sees Maggie as a running experiment that he's yep. she's a test subject for one of his experiments because she's the real deal. She is really psychic. And that's what he's been looking for is the perfect test subject for his experiments as someone who actually does have a psychic vibe. We were talking earlier about psychic vibes and and I think I should make clear that people say often will say I write the paranormal into my plots, into my mm-hmm. I write romantic suspense, and I often do it with a psychic twist. But the paranormal elements to me often signal things like the supernatural, like uh, vampires mm-hmm. and werewolves, and, and I do not mm-hmm. do that. I, I can read those books and enjoy them, but I don't. They're not my core story. I don't write. I don't write that kind of book. I do write books with a psychic vibe, mm-hmm. and I think the reason it works for a lot of readers is because it's just one step beyond intuition, and most of us have a sense of intuition. We, we kind of understand what it is. Sometimes we think we have it, a good intuition, and sometimes we don't, but, but we do understand the concept, and I think understanding the psychic vibe is just one step beyond that, and that's why... A lot of readers can step into my books without having to, you know, believe in vampires and werewolves and that sort of thing. Well, I'm glad you didn't because I don't like when they had the vampires and things. That that's the part well, that uh, it, I know they're real to some people, but it just would have it would have ruined this one. It definitely would have ruined this one. It would have made it a different kind of story. As I said, I don't yeah. do that supernatural. I mean, right now, for example, uh, witches are very popular characters in books. Witchcraft yep. is a big thing. Um, very popular. And I think it's because it's, it's basically a woman's empowerment story. So I totally get mm-hmm. it. But I don't write it. And, um, and I make that distinction so that people don't open up one of my books expecting a full-on supernatural kind of character or world. Well, the murders did help. I'll tell you that. <laughs> the murders did help, yeah. So tell us about Beverly, or oh, poor Beverly. And did the death have did her death have anything to do with the case? And well, then we meet Brand- Detective Brandon. I liked him. Yes, he's a good guy. He's the local Burning Cove homicide department pretty much the whole department, mm-hmm. small small department. And uh, he's, he's a character that uh, 
have to wrap up all the loose ends. But the real hero is Sam Sage, who is the private eye from out of town, who has accompanied our hero, Maggie, to the Lucid Dream Conference so that they can mm. investigate as undercover. And that's, um, that's pretty much the main characters in the story. Beverly is a side character. She's not a side character. She gets murdered mm-hmm. early on. But, uh, but because of her murder, they realize they're dealing with something much more than just uh, a blackmail situation. Well, she's smart enough to know. And I get a kick out of her and Sam. And she she made him her assistant. That was hilarious. That was good. (laughs) I felt sorry for for poor Sam. So why did she want to find the fake Aunt Cordelia? And what is this thing about the Traveler? Uh, The Traveler is, is a totally invented concept kind of mm-hmm. a legend in the dreaming world in this story. It's a legend of, of a character that can actually murder in your dreams, murder people in their dreams. It's, he supposedly exists on the so-called um, astral plane. But that's, it's just a legend. It's not for real. But when the murders cannot be explained, mm-hmm people start blaming it on the traveler. Sometimes they have to blame it on somebody. Yeah. So this 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 is the cool part. Arthur was so convinced, well we know why, I'm not gonna explain why. Arthur was convinced that he couldn't do this without Oxlade. But there was an ulterior motive, I know that. We're not gonna say what it is, but um he he just wanted to have Oxlade there for his own self, well, for Dorothy's selfish reasons, basically. Yeah. Now, it's all a, for him, it's all a cunning plan that he's going to end up in charge of the whole institute and making a whole lot of money. (laughs) That's his main goal. It's amazing, though, that some of these women were, well, the ones we're going to, the ones that wind up with, with well, however they connect to Arthur, it's very scary that they wind up falling for the, you know, falling for him in the wrong way. So, well, what why they fall for is his promise. He's gorgeous, they said. Well, he is good looking, but their, but their main, the lure that he attracts people with is his promise to help them access their psychic powers. Mm-hmm. Latent psychic powers. He promises he can help you find them, and that's what he's really selling. That's that's his big lure. It, it, it's scary, really scary. The, <laughs> the, the fun part was, how did you create? Well, first of all, they wanted Maggie to help with Oxlade and his research, but how did you create her nightmare scenes? I mean, everyone was different. You know, when she, you know experiences it, and it's like, oh, my God, that's so scary. And it felt like I was really there with her. Well, good. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. That was that makes me feel like I did my job as a writer. I think oh, the, yes, yeah. you did. <laughs> but keep in mind that she is a for real lucid dreamer. So her dreams are a little different than what you and I would experience because she really mm-hmm. can take control of them. 
which is the definition of lucid dreaming. So she can use them to access her intuition in a way that you can't do it when you're wide awake. It's just something, the psychic vibe of the intuition for her is accessible when she sleeps. So she goes into a dream with the idea of finding answers or, um, in this case, you know, finding a clues to a killer. And they help her, the, the dreams help her see the, see the reality of the people they're dealing with. Like I said, it's all, in my, in my world, the whole psychic thing is just a step beyond intuition. Mm-hmm. It's scary. And I, think, I mean, I've had, well, I've had dreams and gotten up like in a cold sweat, but sometimes you don't know why. It's scary. Yeah. And the idea is that with, a, with lucid dreaming, you'd be able to figure out why. You know, you'd have yeah. more access to be able to analyze the dream. Dream analysis has been around for ever. Yeah. Um, but nobody really knows if it's right or wrong. I mean, nobody's, nobody's got a real solution to dream analysis. And, no, you know, anybody can set themselves up as a dream analyst. And how would you know different? I mean, there's no, there's no science behind it, so to speak. So in other words, if somebody went to a psychotherapist or a, or a psychologist or somebody like that, was like, or anybody, or just somebody that, you know, a social worker that talks about this, they really they would just be speculating. They really wouldn't be somebody that could really tell you what dream analysis is. No, there's no real science to back it up. I mean, you might, your intuition might guide you, I guess, if you're a really good doctor or, really, or a good mm-hmm. Psychic, you know, if you have a sense of how those things translate, but when they try to pin them down in, in a scientific way, they can't do it. They can't really verify it. So that's what makes. And they don't equate it as a as a mental illness either, do they? No, because everybody dreams. You know, if if only some people mm-hmm. dreamed, we'd probably say they were mentally ill. But the reality is, everybody dreams. So we take it for Sometimes granted people, on the one hand. Some people don't want to dream. They're afraid to find out. So what happens when Sam, her assistant, I love him, breaks into the room, room 357? Why did he do that? Well, he's a private eye, and they can be a little little off the books in their approach, especially in the 1930s. And mm. he is investigating to see this the woman is dead, and he's trying to find out who killed her. So he goes to her room to see if there's any clues left in the in the, her hotel room. He's um, he's also an ex-cop, so he knows he knows how the bad guys work. It gives him an edge. They remind me of Nick and Nora. My father and mother used to watch The Thin Man a lot. Uh-huh. So they sort of yeah. that they my father and mother used to like that. That, that they remind me of them. They maybe watch it once in a while. Yeah. That's like I said, that whole 1930s detective vibe is we all yeah. know it when we see it. So it's tell us about the, the real Aunt Cordelia. What? How would you describe her? The real one. Well, she's she's been writing the not the gossip column. I mean that she's been writing the advice column for the newspapers for years, but she's been a recluse all her career. Nobody knows who she really is. 
And she is got secrets from the past. That's why she's such a recluse. And that's what her her interest is is in um, you know giving advice the way people used to dear Abby kind of column that mm. most people recognize. It's all online. It's online now, but in the old days. Every newspaper in America had an advice column, and it was usually syndicated. You know, like there were some mm. very, very well-known advice columnists like Dear Abby or Ann Landers or something, and they would be in every newspaper and every day, and they answered questions from readers, and um, people just loved that. <laughs> it was very popular in the newspapers, sold papers. I think they so still have. Let me think Ann Landers, Dear Abby, my mother used to read. She used to answer them, too. I don't know why. <laughs> it's always, it's, it's, people love seeing other people give advice to people who are having problems. I don't know whether it's, it's you know, it's just that sense of, well, at least I don't have those problems, or here's what I would have mm-hmm. told that person. <laughs> it creates a dialogue, I guess you could say. It's interesting. So I get a kick out of Dorothy. She's evil, but you have to like her. What does Dorothy mean when she says that her husband responds to the aura in the room? And why have Oxlade at the demonstration? He won't do it without him. He insists that he's there. Yes. um, He's he's got Oxlade. They bring Oxlade on board because, A, he's got this drug that they want to sell, and, B, because he is a respected figure in the scientific and medical community, so he gives the he gives his prestige to the Institute. He makes the Institute look mm. like a real uh, scientifically-based operation, not just another scam job. So they need mm. him for his... Uh, for his Science, you know, his his persona. He can make people think they're serious, serious about what they're doing at the institute. But he's got his own agenda too, and that's his drugs that he's working on. But he he is dedicated to the science of it. I mean, he's trying to do the science of it. He's just trying to do it in an illegal way. He needs test subjects. And nobody realizes it until they realize it. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, well, they have they they have their own way of doing things, Arthur and Dorothy, and um, even though Oxlade is good, he needs to open his eyes. So, <laughs> what is the importance of the Carousel Club and the Paradise, and what, what, why does it always link back? Everything links back to Arthur. Well, he's. He's not a nice guy. He's definitely one of the suspects. I know. He's evil. The Carousel, the Carousel Club and uh, the Paradise are the two big nightclubs in Burning Cove, in my books, in my fictional world of Burning Cove. And the Carousel Club is kind of the low-rent dive, and the Paradise Club is the upscale, ritzy nightclub where the Hollywood stars want to be seen and where the best music is and that kind of thing. And... Uh, so those two institutions, along with the Burning Cove Hotel and a few other place, 
places in the story um, show up in all in all six books of the series. I'm six, this is the sixth book in the series. There's five others in this in this Burning Cove world. If people are interested in it, they can uh, check it out at my website. That's, there's all my books are listed by series there. So if you like to read a series, that's that's the place to get. I think they should read all of them. (laughs) Well, thank you. That would be nice. I hope they enjoy it. It's a a fun fun world to work They should read Lightning in the Mirror, too, because that that is really unbelievable. And I love Olivia. She's really good. Lightning in a Mirror is under my Jane Ann Krentz name. I should probably talk a bit about why I use different names, because people always want to know. And if there Mm -hmm. are any aspiring... Any aspiring writers out there, I would say don't do it. <laughs> it was it was maybe not the best business decision I ever made, but I didn't make it for business reasons. I made it because that's just the way things were at the time. I needed another name for another publisher. But in the end, it has served me well to have three names because when people pick up one of my books, they know which world they'll be getting into. Mm-hmm. If you pick up an Amanda, an Amanda Quick, which is when she dreams, you'll be getting a historical setting. It might be a 19th century setting or it might be the 1930s, but you know you're in a historical setting. If you pick up a Jane Ann Krenz book, it's going to be contemporary. My Jane Ann Krenz world is right now, 2022. If you pick up the, it picked me up under my third name, which is Jane Castle, which actually happens to be my birth name, <laughs> you will be you will be getting a futuristic setting. That's I kind of reserve my futuristic paranormal uh, sci sci-fi kind of romances for the Jane Castle name. So three names, three worlds, and it's no secret. It's just that it does tell people which of my worlds they're going to get when they pick up one of my books. It has been a problem in my career because people forget the other name. They may read an Amanda Quick and enjoy an Amanda Quick, but they don't even know about Jane Ann Krentz or Jane Castle. So, <laughs> or they know about them and forgot about them. You know, it's not it's hard to keep track of an author with three names, which I totally understand. And I, uh, You know, yeah, I, got, I got that. And it was funny because when your publicist sent me the the percept you know the um review the review request I go like wait a minute Jane and Kranz and I knew Amanda Quick I didn't know the third one Jane Castle I didn't know that and yeah. she she well, sent she sent me uh, light, lightning in the mirror which is phenomenal and then she sent me this one but she didn't send me the you know, the other author the third per, the third person so I didn't read that Jane one Castle. yet no <laughs> okay. she didn't send that those are those are futuristic settings. And they're a little lighter and more humorous, I guess you would say. But um, as, as I said, this, the three names have been a confusing factor for readers, and I apologize. You know, it always says in my bio, in the, in the book, bio always does, spells it out, but nobody ever reads the bio, so who cares? <laughs> but um, but I, I have to say that it has worked well for me as a writer because when I come out of one world, I'm tired of that one for a while, and I want a fresh setting, and I can go into one of the other worlds and get a fresh setting. 
So if I come mm-hmm. out of a contemporary Jane Ann Krantz, it's fun to dive into an Amanda Quick. If I come out of Amanda Quick, it's fun to dive into Jane Castle. Because I get to work with a whole new, not new, but a, a, a world I haven't been in for quite a while, several months. So I get fresh ideas. But I'm not sure I would get if I had stayed in that world for every book. That, that that's amazing because you don't get bored with yourself either, and you keeps you keeps you mind in in many different directions, which is even better. Exactly, exactly. That's that's how it works for me. That's why I, um, that's why I'm glad I did it that way. But I do, I do understand that readers get confused. And the other thing that kicks in here, which is kind of an interesting side effect from reading. Mm. is that a lot of people don't like to read in different eras. They want maybe historicals, or they want maybe just contemporaries. A lot mm-hmm. of readers don't go back and forth. And even less readers want the futuristic. It's just um, people, people who read mysteries, for example, don't read across all mysteries. They like Perhaps they like the hard-boiled private eye story, mm. or perhaps mm-hmm. they like the police police procedurals, or perhaps they like um, the British, mystery, you know, kind of style or the cozy kind of style. Lots of different kinds of mysteries, and the readers of one often don't read the other. They, if you're a cozy reader, you probably don't read serial killer, hardcore stories. You know, it's, it's the way people are. And it's the same in romantic suspense. Uh, a lot of a lot of people just don't want their romantic suspense set in the 1930s or the 1900s or for the future. They just want it right now. Well, I, I agree with you, but you know what? I must, I must be odd because I like all of them. And to be very honest, <laughs> I would I, I would get bored. I get bored easily. If it's the same, I've had read you know a lot of authors, and sometimes it's the same character, just another plot. Go like, why me? Or um, it's different. I like when it's a change. I don't like only hard boiled or futuristic or paranormal. I like everything. The only thing I really won't read is self help. Sorry about that. No, <laughs> that that I I can't. I you know it's very hard to to re- how how do you decide what to what to eat today or what nutrition or whatever I I can't read the self help books those those are definitely not for me that's when I say somebody sent me an offer the last week and I said I'm sorry it's not my uh, expertise so I I passed on it and I won't read um, political books where both sides are not given and one side is destroying the other one side is destroying one country or the other I won't read those either. So I'm very yeah. particular. But I, I like fiction, nonfiction, um, all sorts of mysteries. And I like mysteries that have different types of characters that don't put me to sleep after the first page. Well, this definitely got me the whole time. So we have oh, Jake and Larry. But who is Raina Kirk and Luther Pell? And what about his paintings does Maggie tell him? How do they connect? That was interesting. Well, Luther is... Luther Pell is the owner of the hottest nightclub in town, the Paradise. Mm-hmm. And Raina Kirk, his lover, is the owner of Kirk Investigations. She's a local PI. Mm. And those those two are a little older than the other characters in the story or than the main characters in the story. Um, and they have secrets in their past. 
Both of them have had traumatic events in their past. And for Luther, he works out some of that trauma in his paintings. Mm. And that's what Maggie, the heroine in the story, figures out when she sees his paintings. She understands that he's working out something in his own dreams that's bad, that he needs to. And and his dreams are bad because they stem from the war, in this case, World War One. Mm-hmm. Because he was a young man in World War One. You know, as an educator, I found that the best way sometimes is to, if something's bothering a child, to tell them to draw it or write it, uh-huh. and uh-huh. and then uh-huh. and then and then think about it. And then, if I think it, it's something that I can handle, fine. Otherwise, I would, you know, inform the guidance counselor that this is what's been happening. Sometimes, if you draw it or just you know let them go with that and to draw a picture of whatever it is. Sometimes it does connect. So painting and drawing is very, very good for expressing feelings and getting the, and sometimes just getting something out that they want to know. So all of a sudden, Maggie, this was scary, was was asked to attend a special dream reading without Sam. But why does she have to sit where they tell her to? Oh, I got the chills on this one. <laughs> Well, they wanted her, they, they had, um, the bad guys had wanted her seated in a special part of the small auditorium mm-hmm. so that she'd be kind of trapped there when everybody else left. So it, it was it was strategy from the bad guys that was uh, putting her in. She was a little afraid of sitting in the chair where the dead body had been found, but they didn't, but she managed to avoid that chair or the seat in the house. It's um, the whole Burning Cove Institute, or the whole uh, Institute for the mm-hmm. Dreams, is basically a remodeled or re-renovated um, mm-hmm. old old Hollywood estate from a director, famous 1920s era director, and 19 famous in my world, not in the real world. <laughs> I should add. Um, but it was done in that gorgeous, that spectacular, over-the-top um, Spanish colonial revival style that was very popular in California. Especially, it was very popular during the before World War II in the 20s and 30s. And uh, it, it's kind of an over-the-top look that everybody sort of associates with California. So, Dorothy... It's interesting. You either like her or you hate her. But she she seems to be the brains in the whole mind, the whole thing here. She she seems to one that controls. Well, she thinks to think that she controls everything. And what happens with the interaction between Maggie Oxalate and the drug? That's scary. Because Oxalate is so evil, but he's really a good character though. <laughs> I, I liked him after yeah. a while. You just like, who can I give that enhancer to that I want to get rid of, kind of thing. Like you want to, you actually have a have, a, have the uh, syringe there. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's obsessed with, with the drug. He's determined it's going to save save the world. So, well, not save the world, but enhance people's dreams mm-hmm. and uh, give him power over them. So he's 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 obsessed more than. He's evil, but he's evil with an obsession that is scientific, not 
he's not mm-hmm. just after money, money or, or power. He just wants his drug to be famous, and he wants to be famous for having invented it. So his, his motives are pretty upset. And Dorothy's a business person. That's how, you know, she may be evil, but basically she's all about business. Well, she's all about the money, yeah. And yeah. she's got control over Arthur, and we're not going to tell what happens at the end. Boy, it's scary. So wh- the issues in this are murder, blackmail, greed. How do they come into play in this novel and um, taking over somebody's mind, sort of like controlling their mind control? How did you create all of them? And every time Maggie has a nightmare, how did you create each different one? Because they're all, they're all different, leading back to her past and her present and everything. Well, the nightmares, I don't know how I created them. They're just part of the storytelling process. You know, I needed a, a dream that would illustrate something in the plot, and so I came up with a script for the dream, I guess you would say. Write a dream script, in a sense. And that just felt natural to the character, so I wasn't conscious of doing anything complicated there. It was just how my character worked. It's um, the whole the whole dream thing is just really interesting to me. I I use it often in my plots. People who have bizarre dreaming or unusual dreaming. Um, the book I'm writing right now features a character that walks in his sleep, which always strikes me as really scary. <laughs> it is It is I scary. I like, I just like working with dreams, and I think part of the reason I like working with them is because they are so mysterious. We have so few answers. I also like this 1930s world because it mm-hmm. exists in, in a time before modern forensics. You know, I don't have to worry about DNA analysis. I don't have to worry about mm-hmm. solving the crime, but like luminol and all that good stuff. My, these, this era allows me to have the crime solved the old-fashioned way, if you will, with the amateur detectives, so to speak, who, um, whose intuition and intelligence finds the clues and finds the, finds the answers to the crime. And that's my favorite kind of mystery. I'm not a procedural writer, if you are a mm-hmm. police procedural type writer. I don't, I don't want to mess with that. It's not my story. So there's, and that's the other thing about using the psychic vibe in these books. It gives me a way to solve the crime without having to use standard procedural techniques. Well, I've, I've read a lot of procedures, police procedural ones. I think I've read ten thousand books, maybe more. And I can tell when a police officer or a detective writes it as opposed to somebody that is just making it up and it's wrong. And I, and I could tell I you it's wrong. Yeah. But before I forget, Thursday, the author, internist, she's a real doctor, P.J. Jefferson, returns with One Real Too Many. On the second, somebody we all know and love, New York Times author Don Bentley, Hostile Intent, Matt Drake is back. On the fourth, Jeffrey Wells, and on the fifth, I love doing these panel shows with Dick Belsky, Charles Salzberg, and Vincent Zandri. And when I actually talk about Jane, how they write, where they write, do you write in the street? Do you write 
in your loft? How do you write? Do you write notes? Do you just tape something? So that should be interesting. On the 10th, I'm going to have got Stephen Manchester, Dad. And on the 12th, I'm like so excited. Um, my college professor from Lehman, when I got my second master's in reading, Dr. Cavuto and I are going to tackle how to teach kids, children, how to understand what they read using a book from the 18th century, uh, UE's Psychology, Pedagogy and Psychology of Reading. That's my field. So we're going to talk about that on that date, and it should be interesting because he's amazing, and he's the reason why I understand what I'm doing. He taught me a lot. So let's get back to this. Um, why did they blackmail Aunt Cordelia? Why did anybody want to blackmail her? What was the point? Well, she had her own secrets from the past, which I can't yeah. get away because that would get away the plot. No. Um, but, you know, to get back to your announcement there about the psychology of reading, Yeah. I, I find that a fascinating uh, field. I'm, it, I've never really talked to somebody who was into it like you. That's a that's an interesting conversation mm-hmm. to have on its own, because yeah. I have always thought I have always felt that one of the things that has made me realize over the years is that not everyone got the gift of reading for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Most of us can, most of us can read, you know, at least get through you know you know the nuts and bolts of it. And we can read instructions or we can read a newspaper. But those of us who actually read novels for pleasure and escape mm-hmm. and just enjoyment, we are a much smaller cut of the total reading population. And I find that very mm-hmm. interesting. Why, why doesn't everybody enjoy a novel? It's just they don't. And it's very interesting to me that that's, not everybody has any interest in reading for pleasure. Do you have any theories on that? Yeah, a lot of I do, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> a lot of people read because they don't want to read a book with a lot of pages. I'm 250 pages. How am I going to get through that? I don't want to read it. Um, uh, I taught 6th six, grade. The, the first year I had a difficult group, but I got them straightened out. But the second year I had a group of, of children that were high-level, high really brilliant. And you're right. How do you get them to read? The reader is not how you get children to read. And classroom teachers, Dr. Cavuto and I will tell you, are not trained to do what we could do, which is teach children how to read the right way and address their differences. So the sixth grade class read To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm serious. We did. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I got in trouble for that one. But let me tell you, it was worth it. I, I said to them, <laughs> would you like to try something a little controversial? And we did. And what we did was we talked about the fact that the defendant was black. You also talked about what would happen if the defendant was white and the jury was black. And we acted out both. It was, oh, it was phenomenal. Um, then we read Little Women, Little Men. They wouldn't let me read Huckleberry Finn. He said, you can't do it. But we, uh, no one, the the par- yeah, the parents had no problem with it. So I, I taught yeah. them um, Edgar Allan Poe short stories, the, the original ones, and the Sherlock Holmes short stories, because I wanted them to get into into literature. Yeah, it's very hard because people automatically look at the pages of a book. Or I I look at I don't look at the back cover. I don't look at the book. I just look at maybe a short summary and say something, and then I form my own opinion. 
of what the book is about. Yeah. And a lot of people tell, oh, I don't have time to read. I don't understand what I'm reading. And they don't realize reading is like power, is what I told my students. It's a power to give you to make choices in life so that the more knowledge you have, whether it's social studies or science, I even told them if you pick up a classic comic or a comic book, that's okay too, as long as you read. Yeah. And and it's, as many books as I read a week, too many sometimes, um, very few people in my family read. My brother will read the newspaper. My n- nephews are brilliant, and they read for school. And, but mm-hmm. nobody reads novels. It's, it's, it's sad That's- because novels open up into other worlds. You can just forget where you are when you read a book. That's my thing. Well, that's why I find it interesting that we are in the minority of readers. Most people don't. If, if you ask the average person on the street how many books they read this past year, I, I bet you'd be lucky to get people to be able to say two or three. That was, you know what? And even I bet a lot of people don't even read a book a year. I think I read about 200, and it's only since January. <laughs> Seriously. Well, you are you are in the business. That makes a difference. Well, my mother I find it. did this. She used to make me read 10 books a week, besides Hebrew lessons, oh. piano lessons. I hated dancing <laughs> lessons. I really hated them. And the ice skating, that was even worse. And that's why I wrote My Name is Bertha, my two stories, growing up with my sister who told everybody that I was not her sister because I was overweight and whatever. And I said, what can I do? I can't dance. But, yeah, she made me read and and. She made me take notes, which I still do, take notes on the book. Underline, circle, so that when I finish reading a book, no one wants it. It's the truth. I mean, reading, I, I, I mean, just give me a book, and I have five inside. And Marsha Casper-Cook is on, and she just wrote Second Chances, which is a great, uh, I started it yesterday. She knows, and I'm going to probably finish it later or the next day. It's a lovely romance novel. It's different. And I, I could just sit down and read and if I don't read, like, um, 500 pages a day, I feel like I'm cheating myself. And <laughs> I just do the reviews because I want to, and I don't expect any anything other than I hope I did it right or I hope my computer didn't make it. My computer has a habit of making reviews disappear, so I type them on my phone, then I send them over. So how did you take through the final takedown scene? How did you create that? That was unbelievable. And I'm and what's next for you? Because I'm not going to ask about Maggie and Sam because they're going to have whatever they have at the end of the book. And you're going to, I'm not going to tell you if you're going to be happy or sad. Sorry, you have to read it. Okay. Well, next up will be a Jane Ann Krentz book. Um, no, right. Oh, I stand corrected. This is this book, Amanda Quick, When She Dreams, comes out next Tuesday or Tuesday the 3rd of May. And after that will be a September release under my Jane Castle name, and that's one of the futuristic, futuristic romantic suspense. I always do romantic suspense. That's my core story. But I do it in three different worlds, three different kinds of backdrop, three different kinds of plot. But it's, so that's the advantage of moving from world to world for me. But the core story of romantic suspense is my favorite. I love to read it, and I love to write it. So that's well, I hope they the send Jane, it to me. <laughs> Jane Castle will be the next next book out, and the title is Sweetwater and the Witch. And no, I don't. And are you going to use the same stuff. publicist? 
I going to use Yasmin, yeah. the same publicist, so I can haunt her? Yeah. Yeah. Yasmin is fabulous. Yes, she is. You I'm going to haunt her. her right after the show. Trust me. Okay. Okay, so okay. where can everybody get every one of your books? Because... They should, and if you didn't read, uh, if you don't, if you didn't pre-order When She Dreams, what what are you waiting for? And if you didn't read Lightning in the Mirror, oh my God, you got to read that. It is so fantastic. That was the first one of yours that they sent me, and I just sat down and read it, and I was like, oh, this is outrageous. And then she said, I sent her the questions actually for that one, and then she says, No, I want When She Dreams. I couldn't put this one down when I got it. Seriously. So where can everybody get every one of your books? Like right away. Good old Amazon or B&N online. Uh, if you want to list the books or to see if, which books you might be interested, I recommend going to my website, mm-hmm. which is janeannkrentz.com or amandaquick.com. Get you to the same place. That will give you the whole list and the buy links to the various sources. Well, this has been the nicest thing that's happened to me all week, for real, all day long. I've been looking forward to this forever, and I have to thank you so much, and I have to thank Yasmin for thinking of me that you wanted to do this. And um, the, Marcia Casper-Cook is on the line, and she said she would like to have you on her broadcast, too, to talk okay. about how you write and different ways to write. So I will contact Yasmin and see if she can come up with something, because she's really good also and she likes to have fun and talk about writing and promoting and stuff like that but this is this is great and it's pouring outside so this sort of brought a a lot of sunshine today to me so thank you jane thank you amanda thank you so much and everybody do something kind for someone do a kindness for someone this world is so mixed up it would be really great if everybody would just take the time to just say Thank you, or have a great day, and smile. Thank you so much, Amanda, Jane. (laughs) Everybody have a great day, and bye. Thank you.